0: morning everyone, welcome to Medicine Box, welcome to Maps, my name is Sam Guglani and whatever route or map brought you here, our hope very much is that you will find some other new path out of here and home. Our first speaker this morning is Caspar Henson, um, writer uh, of A New Map of Wonders and uh, last year he was here with us talking about um, his book, A Book of Barely Imagined Beings. He's a hero. We're very much in love with him, so we've asked him back this year to open up with maps. Kasper Henderson. Good morning. Uh, I guess it's my job to uh, wake you up a little bit. I'll try. Um, I'm going to show a few nice pictures and read a couple of extracts and... A few reflections on maps um, and dreams. I'm going to s- firstly, I should say, my talk is uh, a very one-dimensional uh, ramble through a three or four-dimensional space. So that's my excuse. Um, I'm going to start by reading something from the fifth chapter of the book that um, Sam mentioned, a new map of wonders." It's from the start of chapter six, which is called "Maps and Dreams." When I was eight, I loved to pore over an old atlas in my grandparents' house, imagining lands and stories far beyond my own little world. I also liked to go out into the back garden, turn on an outside tap at the top of a gently sloping path, and watch trickles of water snake down between the stones. I would imagine that I was looking from a great height on a map of rivers in wild country, and that one day, I would travel to such places and encounter amazing things. These childish dreams share something with an urge that has also given rise to an ancient and enduring vision of flight, the desire to know the world. Among the ebony or reindeer people of northeast Siberia, for instance, apprentice shamans develop the skills and intuitions that hunters acquire on the ground through dreams in which they soar effortlessly over the landscape monitoring the movements of migratory animals. Among the Yanomami of the Amazon, initiates fly up into and beyond the tree canopy, where they learn about the forest spirits and their own place in the whole. My spirit spreads everywhere, under the ground and under the water, beyond the sky and in the most distant regions, regions, says the Yanomami elder, Davi Kopanawa. Shamans in pre-agricultural societies see the lands they need to know through methods akin to daydreaming or lucid dreaming. We, in our highly technological culture, often rely on maps, graphic representations that facilitate a spatial understanding of things, concepts, conditions, processes, or events in the world. But there is no hard and fast line between maps and dreams, because maps, however objective they may seem, are only interpretations. A map is always a way of groping through the unknown. Turn the page. Maps can be can be ways of wondering at the world and ways of representing its wonders. They can also be wonders in themselves. For wonder, observes the scholar Philip Fisher, the scholar Philip Fisher, is often sparked by linking a local detail to a larger picture setting the intimate and the celestial side-by-side. And this is exactly what maps do. Even the mundane act for searching for a route online allows us to fly in our minds wherever we wish, looking down as if from a godlike perspective that we can manipulate at will. The map's dissimulating brilliance, writes the historian Jerry Broughton, is to make the viewer believe, just for a moment, that they are not still tethered to the earth looking at a map. Okay, here's a picture of the Mappa Mundi, which I imagine many of you are familiar with. It's at Hereford Cathedral. It's from 1300, and it represents uh, the world. Mappa Mundi, meaning map of the world, of course, in, um, in Latin. Jerusalem's at the center, uh, and you may have worked this out if you didn't already know, but if you turn it so that the point is at the right, in other words, you turn it 90 degrees clockwise, you you may discern a recognisable outline of Europe with the British Isles here and Europe and the Mediterranean in the middle. In some ways it seems a very crude map, uh, but I'm going to briefly argue that uh, it has more surprises and tells us more about uh, maps today and the way we think than you might expect. Um, One of the models, well, one of the origins for this map um, is very likely something like this which is a modern reconstruction obviously of a map by Anaximander uh, the Greek philosopher from Miletus he probably had a Babylonian model but um, in his map probably Miletus or possibly Athens was at the center and that was the world and you can see the similarity you just imagine turning it by 90 degrees as I mentioned the the Mapa Mundi Um, Anaximander's map 6th century BC, more or less, I think. Um, and uh, c- quite crude to our way of thinking. This map, you may know, it's actually upside down. <laughs> um, it was made for Roger, king of Sicily, in the 1100s. And even though it's an older map than the Mapamundi, it's, look, it's significantly more sophisticated in some respects, at least to our eyes, than the Mapamundi. Uh, it's recognisable quite recognisable. The Arabian pen- Peninsula as well as Europe are almost like their modern shapes, although Italy in particular is quite wonky, uh, but it's, it's recognisably there. Um, so maps are not, have much more in them than is immediately apparent, and what we map and how we map has changed enormously over the last few hundred years. I know this much is obvious. Uh, if you go forward to the uh, early 1800s, um, you've got this um, this map by Joseph Smith, um, and what it's doing is showing you, among other things, time. Um, this is a dimension that's also present in the mapamundi, which from the top, which in the case of the mapamundi is east, moving down, goes from what they believe to be the ancient times and uh, the world of uh, well Eden and the ancient world through to contemporary Europe. So there's a dimension of time in the in the Mappa Mundi. It's actually present in the map. And of course, this map um, begins to map geological time and deep time. There's a nice detail from it. I couldn't get a very good picture online, so um, this gives you some sense of the beauty of it, at least if you haven't seen it. And uh, jumping forward, as we have a little time here, Uh, to the 1860s. This is a map by um, a man named Charles Joseph Minard, who's a a civil engineer. He made it in 1869, but it's a a map of a kind of Napoleon's Russian campaign of 1812, um, which uh, you may know something about, we can always talk about. Uh, One of the things that's interesting about it is that it displays six types of data in two dimensions, it, um, it stu- it's, um, there's a river on the left-hand side, uh, the Niemann, and it shows as you go across in the in the kind of buff colour the size of the Grande Armée of Napoleon's army. I think it was I think it was over a million. Well, maybe even two million. Somebody will know here. Uh, and you can see as it goes towards Moscow, how it um, gets smaller. How. Presumably to begin with from desertions and other causes, probably mostly disease, I guess, uh, it diminishes in size. And coming back, uh, the black line, uh, you can see that about 10,000 troops got home, at least according to the data they had. So it maps um, the number of troops, the distance travelled, the temperature, the latitude, the longitude, the direction of travel, and the location relative to specific dates. So here's mapping taking, taking on a new form. Um, and uh, perhaps a record, something like an ancestor to the kinds of maps we're seeing today. This is a mo- modern Mappa Mundi um, created by Ben Hennig, a, a stu- former student of uh, Danny Dawling, who's here today. Uh, and you probably worked out if you didn't before, didn't know it before, this uh, shows land masses according to uh, proportional to their population. So we can see the UK, London's up there. What's striking, perhaps, if you haven't seen this before, is just how big India and China are Nigeria, which, of course, is going to double or triple in population unless really bad things happen this century. Um, and it's, you know, the, I guess one of the points being here that maps aren't solely about the accurate and true representation, as far as that's possible, of, of um, the ground before you. They also represent concepts. They can, they can be used for many purposes. Um, and uh, here's one that particularly makes me laugh. This is a cover from New Yorker magazine in uh, 2001, December 2001. So uh, just three, two, three months after the 9-11 attack when the United States, with NATO support at that stage, was well, all the way through in Afghanistan, was getting ready to, to invade Afghanistan. Um, but it turns the kind of colonial mentality back on New York and... Uh, um, perhaps for some of the, I guess most of you are medics in the room, you might particularly laugh at Psycho Babylon and uh, some of the other... Uh, we've got the Mullahs and the Bulimics, the blaniks, that's the Manolo Blanik bag people, the Flatbushtons, that you don't understand Istan, you know, got irate and Iran down there. So anyway, uh, you know, we still have... Of course, we all have mental maps of all kinds, and some of them are uh, quite crude and full of prejudice and ignorance. Um, uh, I guess one of the things that's good news about maps is it's um, increasingly possible to uh, map things that are hidden. Here's an example. I'm afraid it's just a screen grab from uh, something you can find online. There's a link there at the bottom. If you can see it in that purple from PrivateEye, the PrivateEye.co.uk registry. Uh, property acquired by overseas companies 2005 to July 2014 in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, we can y- Maps can help us dig into um, places that are hidden and are, are invisible, uh, which somehow seems contradictory you know, in the nature of a map. And um, thinking... This is another old-ish graphic representation, but I want to use this to talk briefly about thinking ahead and some of the roles that maps may play. This, you may know, is uh, from Humboldt. Um, And it represents what we now call ecosystems or biomes on the sides of the Andes. I think it's Chimborazo Mountain. Um, And uh, Humboldt was able to, having an extraordinarily capacious mind and memory, was able to retain information about virtually everything he'd seen and done. You may know this if you've read Andrea Wolff's beautiful, lovely recent biography. He was able to contain a map of everything he saw in his head um, and uh, assess it and relate it and put it in its place. This is something like a representation of that. Um, and with the technologies that we have now, uh, we can do this kind of thing kind of cubed, as it were, or to the power of four. Or um, There's a Greg, Greg Milner's published a book recently called GPS, uh, excuse me, called Pinpoint How GPS is Changing Our World. And um, I'm going to read a brief extract actually from a uh, review of the book. Um, Milner visited a sugar beet farm in Colorado, a few hours north of Shriver Air Force Base. Using GPS in combination with the Russian GLONAS, that's G L O N A S S system, to achieve sub-inch accuracy. The beet farmer tills his fields in strips, leaving a narrow band of fallow earth between each row to help keep water and nutrients in the soil. Each seed is planted in precise, each seed is planted in a precise recorded position with more of them in the most fertile parts of the field. Just the right amounts of water and fertilizer is sprayed onto the beets. When they're harvested, each and every one can be plucked entire from the earth A broken beat is no use to anyone. Milner reckons that GPS is now worth billions a year to American farmers. An experiment in Uttar Pradesh, meanwhile, found that levelling the land on a two-acre farm using GPS nearly tripled the wheat yield. The farmer in Colorado told Milner that GPS gives him intimate knowledge of the land, like his grandfather, who walked behind a horse looking at the ground beneath his feet. Still, high-tech agriculture has its downsides. Not so many years ago, it took two men to harvest a beet field, one of them driving a tractor, the other operating the digger at the back. Now the tractor does almost everything itself. The driver merely has to turn it round at the end of the row. Soon, he won't even do that. Um, So what what will new kinds of maps make possible? Maps are increasingly... Often, at least increasingly, they're electronic or electronically generated. This, of course, is a computer-generated map, or um, systems uh, that have been, electronic systems have been used to make it. Uh, And inevitably, it seems likely to be inevitable, at least, that these will overlap with virtual reality and augmented reality systems and I'm going to read you a second brief extract, hopefully brief, if I can find it, from A New Map of Wonders, uh, with with regard to some thoughts (laughs) about the role of virtual reality and augmented reality technologies. The new technologies will make it possible to create and reproduce alternative worlds reliably and to order. And as they improve, it will, make it, pos- e- possible, it will make possible even more immersive and real-seeming, but fictional or simulated worlds. They will allow us to have access to an on- almost unlimited data and a- additional sensory stimulation while we interact with the actual world. This will mean that in some respects, we will overcome the impasse described by Jorge Luis Borges in his story on exactitude in science, in which the map of an empire becomes so detailed and so vast that it threatens to smother the empire itself and is abandoned. Instead of having to throw the map away because it is too large and impractical, we will will be able to access any part of it, whether it represents something distant or near to hand with almost no effort. This is both bad and good news. Some of the potential downsides are familiar from fiction. The technology may, for instance, help lock us into parallel virtual worlds in which our subjugation is hidden from us like the matrix, but with the difference that the illusions are controlled by states, corporations, and criminal entities rather than intelligent machines. But wisely used, and why shouldn't they be, virtual reality and success... Oops, hey Daisy. Sorry. Virtual reality and uh, successor technologies um, could have enormous upsides. Mixed and augmented reality systems, in which maps and data could be, can be flexibly superimposed on what is in front of us, could, for example, Empower those working in international development or fighting crime and corruption. They will also make it possible to create an experiment with scenarios of liberation and possibilities of every conceivable sign, a kind in total freedom, but without harms to others. Harm to others. It is also possible, for example, to find out. I'll jump there. Excuse me. Uh, without harm to others. And, like the inhabitants of Baucus in Calvino's 1972 novel, Invisible City, who from a distance contemplate with fascination the world in their absence, we will be able to get close to the non-human wonders without disturbing them. Okay, so, um, with regard... I mean, this is a huge topic, and I'm just pointing at it rather than discussing it. Uh, With regard to augmented and virtual reality technologies, the, the one of the pioneers in the field, Jaron Lenier, who's just published a book, has a very extreme statement, which I think I don't agree with, and I'm going to mention here. Um, he asks, "Can we make digital art so beautiful that it seduces man away from mass suicide?" This is actually this is not a um, computer-generated image. This is a this is a real uh, photograph, <laughs> whatever that means, um, and it's the photographer was in a lagoon in um, Florida, kayaking at night, and he put his left hand down into the water. And you can see the bioluminescence from, I guess, diatoms against his hand. Um, And the reality that lies outside the computer world is always there if we choose to look at it. Here's another enigmatic photograph of our world, uh, which I'd like to leave with you. And one more, this is a logarithmic representation of the universe, you've probably seen it. Um, I'm not sure I like this image very much, but uh, it's a a version of the powers of ten going out to the edges of the the known universe, uh, the bubble in which we appear to live. Um, And I'll leave you perhaps with uh, some lines from the American anthropologist Lauren Isley We forget that nature itself is one vast miracle transcending the reality of night and nothingness. We forget that each one of us in his personal life repeats that miracle. That's it.